What an absolute pleasure it is to have me adoring on today's podcast. I should give you the warning in case you don't know already that we are going to be covering some very adult topics today. And if any of the uh, topics covered affect you, uh, the Rape Crisis Centre's 24-hour helpline is one 800 But we're here today, of course, to talk about Any Girl, a memoir of sexual exploitation and recovery by Mia Doring as published by Hashed Ireland. It's available everywhere now in hard copy, uh, ebook and, of course, audio version. It is a radically honest account of surviving sexual exploitation in the Irish sex trade. Mia is, of course, a psychotherapist and uh, an artist and an incredible writer. And this is her debut memoir and novel to basically talk about this trauma and the integration of her lives, both past and present. The story is, in a nutshell, that from the outside looking in, the young life of Mia Doring seemed kind of unremarkable. She was doing her studies in a prominent Dublin university and just immersed in that life. But unbeknownst to those around her, Mia's life was anything but ordinary. At just 16, she'd been sexually exploited by an older man, which carved a direct path into the sex trade for her, where she remained for several years until finally leaving it behind her over a decade ago at the age of 24. In this book, Mia, who is, as I said, now a a psychotherapist specialising in sexual trauma, she kind of excavates her difficult history as she sets about integrating that old life with her present day life. Anyone who's been through trauma needs to read this book. Uh, Along the way, she presents an ardent and intelligent refutation of a culture that affirms and applauds the industrialization of sexual violation of women and girls and ultimately offers something more precious. Uh, I love the wording of this. She really does look for a way forward for a society that is bedded in true understanding and compassion. The book is unlike anything I've ever read. It is, as I say in this interview, one that challenges you to stay with it and not look away because the sex trade in Ireland and its existence and the realities of it is an extremely uncomfortable truth that Ireland needs to face up to. I am so proud to present to you the me adoring episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation 
nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Thrigo! Mia Doring, thank you so much for doing The Irish Man Abroad. I'm holding the book in my hand, Any Girl. And I was surprised. And then it made sense that this book actually started in 2012, that you wrote the original story of it in 2012. Is that correct? Yeah, I wrote a version of it, yeah. A whole different version of it, yeah. Anonymously. And, you know, you do devote time in the book, because sometimes I feel like some of people's intrigue with this story and your story, your existence, your courage and how you articulate what took place is yeah. that people people can't wrap their head around how you come to the point of doing this and uh, first of all, exist, living that life and then getting to the point of being able to speak your truth. Do you remember 2012 versus 2019 and the person that changed in that time? Yeah, well, in 2012, I was very angry because there was, I just came home from Berlin. I came home from Berlin, I can't even remember, late 2010, I think. And then I started writing my blog in 2011. And the the book came from that. Because I never thought of myself as a writer or anything. I just started writing this blog. I never thought I'm now going to write a blog and I'm going to change people's minds about the sex trade. I just needed to get out the stuff that was inside me that wanted to be uh, told. But I was really angry because of there was the, the culture was very different to what it is now. There was like the sex trade was really a hot topic, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> way of saying that. Um, at the time, and there was a lot of... Um, debating going on and the Nordic model was being campaigned for. That's the criminalization of the purchase of sex and the decriminalization of the sale of sex, along with a couple of other things. So it was a really kind of controversial time uh, back then. And it was a very scary time because my blog went out and people were trying to find out who I was. There was scary messages being left. I was being outed on Twitter, like stuff like this was going on. It was a really scary time. I was barely leaving the house because the blog really, it, it like exploded. And then I wrote the book and then I cancelled the book quite last minute because it didn't feel right to be anonymous. It just didn't, it didn't sit right with me at all to be anonymous. It meant like if I was anonymous, then, then I still had something to hide. And I was still in a, in a, in a place of like shame or thinking I did something wrong or, or I'm scared. You know, it's still a fear place that I did. I, I instinctively back then I didn't think about it. I just felt like this felt, this doesn't feel right. So I'm not going to do it. Hmm. Um, and it was really sad making that decision, but I'm glad I did. It was the right decision for me. And then in 2015, then I tried to write a different book. This is such a long story. And then in 2015, I was like, right, I need to tell the story still. So I was like, right, I'll write a different kind of book. That's kind of part memoir. And it's part like, I don't know, commentary or something like that, kind of a journalistic sort of a vibe. And then I did that. And then that got a little bit of interest, but I also felt that was wrong. Um, that didn't feel right either. So I cancelled that. This was a totally different version of the book name. Cancelled that and then wrote a novel. <laughs> and then I thought, look, okay, it was 2016. I was like, I'll write a novel, sort of like a modern retelling of my story where it's like a sugar baby, sugar daddy situation. You know those websites? Mm-hmm. And 
that uh, or a man that grooms this this 18 year old into this weird dynamic. And I thought, well, I'll do that, and then I'll be able to tell it in a modern way, and I'll still be able to get what I need to get out into the world in a creative way, in an artistic way. I don't have to sacrifice myself. It doesn't have to cost me so much. And I did work on that uh, for about two years and I got some good feedback and that was all great. And then I sat down to work on it and I felt this horrific feeling of doom, just this feeling of, I took a little break from the novel and I went back with my notes I got from different agents and and, uh, publishers and stuff. They gave me some feedback. So I sat down with all that to kind of go, okay, it's January, whatever year it was, 18, 2018, or sorry, 2019 time to get back at it and um and then I felt this horrific feeling of like oh no you've got to tell your own story and what what talk to me about that sense of doom because mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot in what you've just said that like you had to go all the way around that mental obstacle course mm-hmm. of jumping through the hoop of is this the right time what will this do Am I doing it right? Is this the right way? Don't yeah. fall on the spikes, jump over the pit of snakes. Uh, maybe yeah. if you do it standing sideways and with this sprinkling mm-hmm. of truth. Uh, you mean, there's yeah. so much in that, that it says so much about the content of the book that even you as the author had to kind of go on this pilgrimage to yeah. get to yeah. this place where you could write it and even then as you detail in the book there are times during the writing of this where you put the pen down and just look out the window and go what the fuck am I doing Mm. yeah it wasn't very easy it's been like 10 years I'd say because the book was always haunting me and I was doing all this like writing my own story I guess was always haunting me rather than the book yeah and I was trying do all this activism and trying to even if just about rape I was like all right well I don't mind talking about that so I'll do all I'll do a TED talk and I'll do this that and the other and um I'll do all this writing and that was fine, but it wasn't cutting it. You know, it was like, there was a bit of a, there was a feeling of a clinginess or a feeling of desperation or a feeling of like, I have to get this in, not instant gratification, but a sense I'm doing something good um, to kind of make up, obviously there's more going on than just this, but to make up for the fact that I can't tell the whole story, I have to kind of really make this one story I can tell count. And of course, there's, there's lots of value in what I was doing. And I don't mean to like um, take away from that at all or say it was worthless or anything. It wasn't. But on another level, there was, and that was it was good work I did. But on another level, there was a sense of like, am I trying to compensate here a little bit? I think I was, especially in some of the writing. I was trying to, I don't know, make make it be make it be something else. I don't know. Mm. But the feeling was like being haunted. Like it was like ten years of like, doesn't matter what activism I do, doesn't matter what I do this thing is not going to leave me until I tell the truth. It's just going to be in the background all the time at me. It makes me think of Catherine Corliss, the guest mm. that we had who wrote Belonging, uh, who people will know from the tune Mother and Baby Homes and the work that she's done there about the truth. She speaks so much about the truth and the weight of secrets. I guess a haunting is another type of weight because it, it bears down upon you and you're carrying it like it, it, it you're essentially lugging it around and you do talk about weight at times in the book about I think the direct quote is I hope I'm not doing saying this wrong but you said that the more you tell your story the lighter it becomes yeah that's trauma yeah trauma needs to be told over and over again in safe spaces the trauma stories you know I am one uh, traumatic story that 
you know, it's kind of fleeting in the whole book is this experience you had in Dusseldorf as a youngster. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how maybe that impacted on the rest of your life? Yeah, my family and I were in Dusseldorf where my dad's from and I was about four or five. I was really small and my family were looking in a window of some shop and they just left and I have a large family and um, I guess they thought I was just in the herd but I was still there at the window or whatever I was doing. And um, so they, they went on and, and I was lost then and I couldn't find them and I was running and running. I don't remember much of it. I just remember moments of running and then waiting at the traffic lights because in Germany you do not cross the road unless it's a green. Yeah. Like you have to. <laughs> and so you get to the uh, red man. You just I was just standing there waiting and then running again. Like it was kind of obscene. It was mad. Um, but you'd... you'd you'd be so panicked and then stop and be so like just waiting patiently and then running again, like panicked. And then, um, a woman grabbed me, uh, this Turkish lady and took me to her apartment and, um, called the police. And that was very kind of her to do that. I was obviously in a lot of distress. Like, and I remember she gave me, um, an apple and she gave me a kinder bar, you know, that German brand. Mm. And she called the police and my family came. But the moment that I remember from, and it's crazy, the things that you remember, and even you saying that it was a traumatic story, I never thought of it that way until just now. Like, just as you said that, I was like, yeah, that was like really traumatic for me at five years old. Yeah, anyway, um, so she gave me an apple and a, and a bar of chocolate. And I remember not feeling this, not wanting to take the chocolate and just eating the apple because that's, that's being good. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And there was something like, I, I always have this thing in me. Oh, I'm not allowed to take what I want. I'm not allowed to do what I want. Um, I'm not allowed to have what I want. Like it's 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 always been there for me. This feeling. I think a lot me. of people identify with that, though, uh, Maya, because you know I identified with it, you, wanting to be the best little boy in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I thought it was interesting that when you realise you're lost, mm-hmm. you don't immediately shout from the top of your lungs, "Oh my God, where's my mom?" <laughs> you, you know, you you kind of didn't want to cause hassle for people. So you tried to solve it yourself by running around the streets looking yeah. for them. Yeah. Do you identify that feeling of n- not feeling comfortable enough in yourself to, you know, speak to your parents, to open up to your parents? You do talk about watching the news on the couch and really struggling to contain the truth that was in within you of the rape that you had suffered and how you just couldn't bring it to them, that you didn't feel you could share it with them. Uh, no. I mean, I found that amongst all of the heartbreaking, like really soul destroying moments in this book, I found mm. as a parent that really broke my heart because Surely you must think who knows what could have happened had you been in a place to be able to talk to them about what you've been through. Yeah. I mean, there's an awful lot to say about that. But there's the one thing is that I was um, the emotional peacekeeper in my home. Right. So I would sort of, if there was a problem, I would kind of sacrifice myself or mediate or like, not mediate, but kind of, distract or entertain or yeah. um, 
make other people feel better. And that was my that was my role. Like everyone has a role in a family um, system, and that was mine. And so, if that's if my role is to keep the peace, then I'm I'm not going to ruffle the peace. And also, like even as you said, when I was five, I wasn't going to shout at a stranger to help me or or whatever. I just tried to solve it myself. That's always been mm-hmm. how it's been for me. Like the rape that takes place mm. is you know as you say it's a it's a before and after moment there's a different mm. person that remains after it and you say that you can sometimes find yourself wondering about the person before and so much of the the interest and the intrigue as i say like some some people are just going to buy your book because they cannot understand how a person winds up in the sex trade. The the rape that you endured is so crucial, but also so crucial, I feel, that people read it and understand that the reason why it went the way it went and the way things went the way they went from there was partially because it's not your classic movie sexual assault there was so much that you couldn't even describe or rationalize am i right in saying that that you know that this was it was really important to you to articulate that in the book because that Mm. was the truth of what happened and that's the truth of what happens for so many women yeah so many it was really confusing because i didn't really know what sex was i mean i knew what sex was obviously um but i didn't know anything i didn't ever had sex before I was only 16 and I spent, I didn't know because I had all these feelings and I was traumatized, but I didn't know I was traumatized. And I was trying to reassure myself that it wasn't, I mean, I didn't even use the word rape, that like it was fine because, you know, he didn't know what he was doing either. Or, you know, he was only a teenager like me, you know, figuring it out, whatever. I, I gave myself all sorts of excuses. And I, it was really confusing because he was holding my hand and he was being really nice to me. And, or nice as in whatever I interpreted that to be when I was 16. Um, uh, and, he was giving me... Yeah, and drunk. Yeah. yeah. I was like super drunk. But he was giving me all this attention that I really wanted. I really needed to be like fully seen. And I wanted that. So it was a really strange, really confusing, conflicting feelings of like, but you were nice a minute ago and now you're not being nice and I don't get it and I don't even know what's going on. And maybe I did consent because I don't remember the past day. Maybe I did consent to something, but um, but that's all cognitive, you know, intellectualizing around something. Your body knows something happened. You've been violated and just keep sending that message until you acknowledge it, you know. I mean... I've heard you speak to Ryan Tuberty about it. Oh, I'm really conscious of at all rushing through the story. And I also don't want to completely tell the story here because I want people to go and buy this book. (laughs) This is the other thing. It's like, I want people to go and buy this. But maybe take us to the turmoil that you are in from that point to the point of discovering these Lonely Hearts ads. <laughs> because those are seem to be the two pillars or tent poles that kind of are the yeah. entrance to this next phase of your life. Yeah, and it's the part I feel most shame about is the, the next part, you know, um, because I 
I was an active agent in the situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make it my fault, but I was an active. I was, it was just, I just have a lot of shame around it still. I mean, it's getting easier, to be honest with you. The more I talk about it, like I said earlier, the more you talk about these things to people that are not judging you or questioning you, the the more you, the shame is kind of relinquished. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really traumatized and I was just sort of, I suppose, psychologically surviving. And then at the same time, I was having a great time in school and all the rest of it. You know, it's really complex. Yes. It's really complex. You, you don't know what's going on with somebody really. You never do. Um, but at the same time as being my usual self and what I, doing whatever I was doing, I also had this, this weight, I guess, like to call it that. It was like a weight. And then I was with my friends in the park as usual, drinking as usual. And somebody had a magazine. And in the back of the magazine were all these kind of like, as you said, like personal ads. They were, in fairness now, they weren't so much lonely hearts. They were, they were uh, explicit. Yeah, a bit more to were, them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They weren't all just like lonely man. Yeah. It was actively seeking out the, yeah. the sex they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. And <laughs> um, from my vague memories of it, like, you know, so my friends were uh, ringing up these numbers and mobile phones were new and it was all very exciting and texting them and just being really annoying, I'm sure, to all these men. But I don't remember much about that. But I do remember I wanted to take that magazine with me. I knew I, I wanted it. I was really intrigued by this. I, I don't know why. Like, I can't remember my thought process back then. I was just drawn to it. I think I described that in the book as well, being drawn to the edge of things all the time mm. or drawn to like, how, how much can I hurt myself here? You know, and that kind of yeah, that well, I think that that's such a teenage thing. I mean, it it is like, uh, yeah. you know, we've all done prank calls and we've all done, we've all kind of seen how far we can push it. It's the, it's the toddler yeah. in you in so many ways. It's like, well, what happens if I tell my ma to fuck off? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's the edge. Uh, and I, I keep going, oh, Mia, you were so complicated and you were so traumatized and all this is going on for you. And then I'm like, well, also you were just a teenager, like yeah. you just said. Also you were just a teenager. <laughs> And that's why the book is called Any Girl, because this isn't about, oh, I was I was this weirdo who had all these issues and problems and needed help and everything. Not not the case at all. Like, I, I don't know who I said it to. I can't remember what interview it was, but like the rape didn't even need to happen for me to have been drawn to that. You mm. know, I was just vulnerable anyway. I was really insecure anyway, and I needed attention anyway. And this would have um, this would have been a bam for me anyway, getting this attention. So you've but got the magazine in your in your school bag and just like, uh, I mean, anything that any schoolboy would have in his bag that he's not going to show anybody else. You're just kind of fascinated by look at this, look at this mad shit. And are you thinking at that point, I'm going to I'm going to try and initiate contact with these people to see what kind of attention I can get? Like, what's the thought process? Like, I don't, I don't even remember. I just remember I wanted to, I wanted to see what happened, I guess. And I was texting them and I can't remember much about it, but I didn't have much success. But there was a feeling of doing something wrong, you know, that felt quite mm. like, well, satisfying in some way. Yeah, you get a buzz you know? off it. Yeah, like I knew it was, it's like, you know, getting alcohol or something in the, with your fake ID or something. It felt a bit like um, edgy, no, you know? Yeah, yeah like, like, um, I don't know, uh, rebellious or something. Yep. So like cool or something like that. And um, so one of them ended up, um, I can't really remember, but I do know some of them 
were annoyed and, and didn't want to know. And then this one guy did want to know. And um, and did he know at that point, like right away, this is a school kid? Because obviously the other people that figured out this is just a, a waste of time, a time waster. This dude knew right away this schoolgirl, so I'm interested. I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know. But he knew very quickly that I was a teenager. But I don't remember how. Uh, he knew I had a school uniform. He, he was into that. I knew he was into that. He knew I was in school. I don't think he knew my age. I don't, I don't know. This all happened in the course of like texting for a long time. Um, it was a lot at the beginning. Um, my, my memories are a bit all over the place with it. Hmm. But... There was a lot of texting and then not so much and then it was back again and then he wanted to meet me and I knew all this was shady and sexual like there was no doubt about it like I fully knew this but but my sexuality had been so broken and it, it, it really needed attention it just didn't need that kind of attention but I didn't know that but there was something um, very addictive in being given attention in that specific way. Mm. It's, a, it's also you know I don't want to cut in, but it is the beginnings of text messaging. Like it is, it's so strange to even think back to this time. It's like there is, there is a world pre iPhone, uh, yeah. but text messaging at the time was so fresh and new. I messaged you yesterday to to ask, could I ask about were your parents, parents checking kids texts? I mean, yeah. if I told my parents at that time, that text messaging exists, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. Like, uh, I doubt your parents were even looking at who you'd called on your phone. It was just another technology they didn't understand, right? Yeah. And now, I mean, now texting uh, wouldn't be, or, you know, that seems so old fashioned now, even though it wasn't that long ago. But now it's like Facebook, Instagram, all these online platforms where kids can be uh, groomed. Hmm. It's all all there. The men, men can find them anywhere. Yeah, um, but you were completely under cover of darkness here and that your parents had n- no idea what was going on. And uh, as you say, you were in an extremely broken and vulnerable state. You said it was on and off. And you say that mm-hmm. you still have shame around this particular part of things. And again, mm-hmm. I- I'd love to ask about that. Like, clearly, you did nothing wrong as far as i can see this isn't don't don't you find it odd that you you still have shame around this when you've shown so much courage and shone a light and led the way for so many others trying to return or recover from trauma does it does it still do you still go why why do i still feel shame around this when clearly you you were a victim here it's like yeah it's just that when I, you know, he didn't come into my life, I went to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my my choices. That, that part gets to me, that I chose to hurt myself in this way. It's weird, though, because the sex trade part of things that comes later, I don't feel shame around that at all. Because I, I fully understand I was reenacting trauma, blah, blah, blah. I was, you know, I could go on about that. I understand what was going on there for me. I don't fully understand, I think, what was going on for me when I was 16 texting this man. I mean, I do in one way. I've, like, explained it all to myself and whatever. But, like, it just feels mortifying. You know? mm-hmm. if, it wasn't, if it wasn't sexually, I wouldn't, you know. I wouldn't feel 
it wouldn't feel that shamey. But even talking to you about it now relieves it a little bit, you know. But isn't it in the same category as a child that gets into a car with somebody saying, I've got a puppy? Yes. I, I mean, you, like, why would that child ever feel, yeah, but I got in the car? Mm-hmm. I like I know the work you do now, mm-hmm. but isn't it isn't it so interesting that even with the work you do, yeah, that and that again will give people hope that you you, you can you can still have these feelings. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> your feelings aren't wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just yeah. your feelings. They're just feelings, and you know shame comes up, and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. You know it doesn't mean I've done something wrong because I feel shame mm. or that yeah. You were a terrible 16 year old uh, teenager because you did that it doesn't mean anything it's simply kind of for me it kind of points out the place that needs more compassion or needs yeah goodness or needs softness do you know and that can be hard because when i want to reject that part of me that did that you know but that's the part that needs just a little bit of welcoming back in a little bit of like i i hear you you know that's all you don't have to yeah best friends with that part of you that you want to reject but it's like just kind of acknowledging it and going, okay, that's here with me now. That's all right. Yeah. That's okay. Of course, you know, of course you're here. Why would you not be? <laughs> mm. So Jay is the name you attribute to him. That's kind of the man in the phone. When you cross that precipice into it not being in the phone and it being yeah. in real life, it's yeah. detailed really well in the book. And the money exchanges hands at the end of the first interaction with him that's mm-hmm. intimate and intimate is a is a strange word for what took place but you said that the money changed everything for you in that moment how much of that was just that feeling of oh my god i've got money now and how much of that was oh, i can handle what i just well, that awful thing that i just lived through because I now have financial con- compensation for it. Yeah, it was all both of those things at the same time. Right. I didn't. I when I when I first met him, I didn't like him. I, did, I knew I didn't like him anyway, which makes it even weirder. Because you think if I didn't like him, then why did I go there? But mm-hmm. I was under this like con- weird control and a sense of like I have to do what he says. He was very like in charge and dominating. You know that was his buzz, and um, so he was very much in charge and. Once I agreed to go to his house, I had to go, you know, and it's mad to think how oppressive a text texting can be for people, that you feel locked in this situation that you're not locked in at all, but you feel like you are. You feel like I have to do what he says. But yeah, sorry. He, yeah, he gave me the money. And then I left and I felt really disgusting. Like, I'll be honest, like it was really humiliating and... I felt on one hand, getting the attention was good and my sexuality getting the attention was good, but it was also harming me because he was very violent. He wasn't, he was like, it's, it's hard. I don't really want to say what happened, but he, um, yeah, it was like, I was harming my sexuality by engaging with him physically harming my sexuality and also getting attention. It was like this weird two things happening at the same time hmm. um, kind of a thing. It's, it's hard to describe. But then he gave me the money and I felt, oh, that's grand. 
do you know when I left and I was like, oh, I've got a hundred quid now. Because there was loads of money to give a teenage girl. Yeah. To 50 pounds. And he goes, he was like, here's some pocket money. And he knew. And only years and years later, you know, years and years later, like I'm talking about only a few years ago, uh, 2018 maybe, realizing fully, oh, he knew what he was doing by giving me the money. And it wasn't my fault that I took it and I went back. He mm. knew he was he was baiting me to, to come back. Yeah. And I, I didn't even realize that until a few years ago, which is crazy. So there you have it, the first half of my conversation with Mia Doring. It's uh, such a pleasure to have this woman on the show and I would really love you to hear the second half of it. Our show is crowdfunded. We have no advertisers, backers or partners. We need your support to continue making interviews like this. That's why we recommend that you come over and support us on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. And in return, you get the full interview each Sunday. You also get access to hundreds of previous episodes, two other weekly episodes with Marion McKeown from the Sunday Business Post, breaking down everything that's happening in America and Ukraine. And on Tuesday, Sonia O'Sullivan gives you a masterclass in wellness and running. There's so much more in our mini series collection on true crime, men behaving better and Irishman Inside Basketball. You'll also get the bi-weekly episodes of our parenting podcast, Honey, You're Ruining Our Kid. There's so much, and it's only made possible through the support of people like you that are enjoying the show. If you can afford to support us over on Patreon, you'll be paying for the people that can't. So come on over this week. It's the start of the month. Get the most bang for your book. Head over patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. And hear the rest of this conversation with me adoring. The book Any Girl, as I said, is out now everywhere you get books. And you can watch that TED talk that we mentioned on YouTube really easily just by searching her name. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this first half. And I hope you'll take the time to come over and listen to the rest of it. Brian Connolly is on sound. Tina and Mikey make it all possible. And if I don't talk to you over there, I'll talk to you on Tuesday. What's on your Sullivan?